Okay, we are recording. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. <laughs> Getting over a little sickness here. Um, we are welcomed by George Lanfear today to the podcast. How are you feeling today? Doing fantastic. Bright sunny day, cool weather, fall setting in. Mm-hmm. Heavy frost this morning. Yeah. yeah, things are good. Sounds good. Uh, so, for those of you listening that don't know, George Lanfear is my father. Um, so we're going to get into a little conversation just about his life, and uh, hopefully you enjoy this. So I guess we can start off with uh, the restaurant. So you owned a restaurant for how many years? Ten years. Ten years. Um, so kind of work me through how that started as far as why did you decide to open a restaurant and did you have any experience prior working in a restaurant or did you just start it yourself? Well, that's, a, that's, I hope we got plenty of time because that's a <laughs> bit of a story, but I'll, I'll try and summarize it. So, uh, I would say, let's go back to high school. My very first job was actually washing dishes at a restaurant called the prime factor restaurant in Winooski, Vermont. Okay. And it did not last long. It was the most horrific job that I ever imagined that I could have gotten. Um, I did not enjoy it at all. And uh, I was I was there for a very, very short time. So I uh, got out of that and, and uh, did, did some other jobs in high school. Had had a lot of fun, great fun. And uh, I wasn't the, the most academic or disciplined of people. Uh, the high school students, um, and and I ended up uh, getting into New Hampshire College in New Hampshire, and I wanted to get into hotel restaurant management. So I started that, and I was only there about uh, well, I was only there one semester. So again, fa- failed in the in the discipline and, and focus department, and kind of kind of felt like I could cruise through and, and, and get by doing as little as possible. Well, that didn't work out. So um, came back to Vermont and ended up going back to work for, for company, local company I worked for in, when I was in high school. And I worked for them for a few years and realized that that was probably not my long-term interest. And a friend of mine told me about this restaurant that had closed in Essex and thought it would be probably up for sale soon. And um, I looked into it and started to develop this really crazy wild ass idea in my mind that if I like took what I enjoyed doing on the barbecue grill and mm-hmm. opened up a restaurant and did the same, that it would just be easy peasy, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. So, <laughs> something that's fun, and uh, yeah, so so that's what I did in in uh, nineteen ninety one, and uh, it was an interesting experience mm-hmm. uh, f- <clears throat> from that point. So that's how I kind of got to the restaurant, and uh, then there's there's you know things evolve, but uh, I don't need to talk about all those details. <laughs> So you had no previous kind of experience other than in the restaurant business, other than just like working as a dishwasher. Um, you didn't like sous chef for anyone or work, worked as a line cook or anything. None of that. None of that. Uh, you know, 
my my mom was always great great cook and you know I always enjoyed cooking and you know experimenting and trying things and seeing what friends were doing and stuff but yeah no no hands-on experience no no formal training whatsoever mm-hmm. and so what type of food did you serve at the restaurant for those that don't necessarily know about it um so like uh when i first opened i thought i would have this you know barbecue menu and really focused on the on on the, the ribs and the pork and the chicken and that kind of stuff and burgers mm-hmm. Um, it worked, it worked okay for a while, but it was a struggle because, you know, just being in Vermont, people, people like barbecue, but it's not something that they'll focus on for, for a meal once a week. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, they, they like to get it every now and then, but it's, it's not a mainstay type of menu. So we had to adapt over time and, uh, make some adjustments. So do you want to kind of explain like the adjustments you made? Um, so yeah. you started with barbecue, wasn't working so well and then turned to. So yeah, after about a, a year or so, uh, you know, things were, were going along, but consistently had people saying, Hey, how come you're not serving breakfast? How come you're not serving breakfast? So mm-hmm. We, we started doing breakfast a few days a week and um, that started to take off. And, and then we, so we were serving three meals a day, seven days a week. And, uh, you know, things, things were okay, but our, our traffic and our money was coming in on during breakfast and lunch and, and dinners were, were a struggle. Uh, but I had nothing else to do. Um, <laughs> just a young single guy and, you know, figured, figured might as well keep plugging away at it. So, mm-hmm. so we kept going. And then, um, about 1990, late 93, early 94, I met your mother and, uh, we started dating. And so it, I would say in late sometime in 94, we stopped doing dinners, mm-hmm. um, just because I, I was tired of working so much and, <laughs> wanted to spend time with doing other things. And, and so we, we switched back and we did, or we didn't switch back, but we, we just went to breakfast and lunch and that ended up being the mainstay. And we did really well with that. Mm-hmm. We had uh, a lot of success being really focused on those things and, you know, still very early morning, but it was uh, relatively early afternoon too. So, <clears throat> So you mentioned that you had more success with kind of breakfast and lunch. Um, was that just because more people were more likely to go out to breakfast and more likely to go out to lunch? Or does it like cost come into effect? Because I feel like for breakfast, it's just like eggs and potatoes. That's honestly pretty cheap. But if you're doing dinner, it's like steak and different vegetables. So I, I don't know how much like kind of the food you were preparing played into it, too. Yeah, I think, you know, I don't know if this is the, the, the right demographic term or not, but the, the community that the restaurant was in, Essex Junction and Essex, often referred to as a, as a bedroom community, meaning that, you know, people get home and they stay home. Mm-hmm. And so that makes dinner a little harder 
Um, if you have, so the breakfast and lunch thing, if you catch people when they're out doing errands or on their way to work or on their way to the dump or getting their hair cut or whatever mm -hmm. it is, if you, if you get them into a routine when they're part of that uh, process, then, then you don't have to draw them out of their homes at night. You know, Burlington, South Burlington, some other communities are around. There's more people that go out at night. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, that's great for, for dinner restaurants, but for us, it's where we were in Essex. It was more like our, our local area was pretty much, you know, out in the morning, out during the day and, and then home at night. Mm -hmm. And for those of you listening, uh, he's talking about different kind of Vermont towns, um, when he says Essex and Burlington. Um, but yeah, I mean, it makes sense because obviously Essex Junction is where I went to high school. Um, it's not necessarily a place like New York City where people are going out to eat or going out to a bar every night of the week. Um, it's certainly kind of a mellow, mellow town um, with not a lot of nightlife, which, like you said, that kind of leads people to when they're home, they just kind of stay home. Um, so what would you say, I guess, because my question is, is I know you still now and I still know you love to cook. I'm, I guess I'm just surprised because how many years did you have the restaurant? You said, did you mention that before? 10 years. So after like cooking 10 years, like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, seven days a week, um, obviously you didn't do dinner at the very end, but are you surprised that you still enjoy to cook for people? Um, I, I, yeah, I guess I don't know if I, I, refer to it as being surprised. I just, I just like to cook mm -hmm. and, you know, I like to challenge myself and, you know, see what I can do. And, you know, you'd like to, I guess, uh, either read about or watch or get ideas on what other people do and say, well, I, I bet you I could do that. So it's somewhat of a challenge. Mm -hmm. right? And then you kind of compare your results and you're like, well, that didn't work out or, I would have done that differently or sometimes you just say to yourself, well, this isn't that good, but I'm just going to sell it as fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, so, Oh, go ahead. So, yeah, I, I just think, uh, you know, I enjoy cooking for people. I enjoy, you know, giving them opportunities to maybe try something that they've never really thought of having before or tried before and it's, i'm not this you know exotic foods or real elaborate but it's just kind of like mainstay kind of things with a little bit of different touch to it mm -hmm. yeah um so i guess what i want to ask next is did you have a specific would you say signature dish whether it was at the restaurant or just in general, that maybe you didn't think was the greatest, but everyone loved it? Um, I think that we we had certain things. So, you know, we, we had some really awesome people that worked for us over the years. We had this guy, Chris Wood, that I actually went to high school with, and he, he was one of our cooks in the kitchen, and he actually went to the New England Culinary Institute. So he had a lot of a lot of cooking knowledge and I learned a lot from him. And uh, one of the things that, that he came up with, was we, we started serving these breakfast burritos. 
So we had a daily breakfast burrito that had, you know, could be a veggie one one day or a sausage and onion one. And you know, put the salsa across the top of mm-hmm. it and the sour cream on the side. And um, people really enjoyed those. They, they really enjoyed that. That was a very popular item. Um, we also uh, did popovers. So it's kind of like this big puff pastry thing. Um, I th- kind of like Yorkshire pudding, maybe for people that aren't familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, usually serve it with maple syrup and butter. Some people like jelly, uh, but that was that was very popular. And then uh, we would we would do some some really fun things for like Mother's Day. We put together this shrimp and artichoke. Um, dish that was uh kind of like almost like a baked casserole type of thing it was it was pretty tasty people really enjoyed that but yeah we we did all kinds of fun stuff and um but i would i would say popovers um breakfast burritos our omelets we actually uh finished under a broiler mm-hmm. so they kind of puffed up more mm-hmm. than you would uh picture just a, a omelet off a flat iron um yeah. Hmm. Very cool. Um, I want to kind of go back to the breakfast burritos because this was obviously in the kind of early mid nineties. Obviously, breakfast burritos are very prevalent now, but I'm just curious: were they as prevalent back then, or was it kind of a new thing that not necessarily everyone was having? Uh, I would say it was a new thing that not necessarily everybody's having. Chris, Chris brought it up, and I'm like, well what do you mean breakfast burrito, you know? And <laughs> so you had never obvious, heard of right? it. And, and so scrambled egg, you know, just eggs and mm-hmm. cheese and whatever you want for filling. And then you put it in the tortilla and, you know, wraps were starting to become fairly, uh, you know, popular at the time as an alternative to, to bread. So we, we had wraps generally. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a relatively new thing. It wasn't very common. Hmm. And then as far as advertising and marketing and things like that, was it, did you do anything kind of special in that area or was it all just kind of word of mouth and you were in downtown Essex, which helps correct. You were kind of in the center of the town, but did you do any sort of marketing or it was just word of mouth primarily? I would say primarily word of mouth. Um, You know, we didn't have any of the, any of the media platforms that exist now, Mm -hmm. excuse me, but, um, you know, we did some advertising in the, uh, Essex reporter, local newspaper, few ads here and there. Um, we had, there was an article written up about, uh, the restaurant in a local business magazine, uh, for Chittenden County, the county, the county we're in. And so, you know, you get little pieces like that, but by far word of mouth is your best friend and can be your worst enemy. So, (laughs) you know, uh, yeah, if you, if you don't take care of the people that come through the front door, they'll, they'll let other people know. And, and, uh, so yeah, it was, it was mostly word of mouth, I would say. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a good incentive to be nice to people. Now, not only because it's the right thing to do, but because they'll turn around and tell all their friends and family not to come. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, for for the most part, we had really really good staff, and the, and the customers were a lot of fun. I mean, they they really made it worth it because you know we get the same people. We had from I would say from six in the morning until ten, that eighty percent of the clientele was people that came in either that same day at that same time or every day at the same time, mm-hmm. and uh, you know. Unfortunately, we went through a few times where, you know, somebody didn't show up when they always show up. And if they weren't going to show up, they told you in advance. And yeah. when they don't show up, somebody's somebody's got to go check on them. And, you know, things things don't end well there. And we had that happen a couple of times. It's sad, but it's life. Mm-hmm. It's we, we all kind of progress through. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Good people. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. You essentially created a little community of people that would all see each other, whether it's every day or every week or on the weekends and things like that. Right. Yeah. Um, so I want to kind of go back to you learning how to cook. You mentioned your mom was an avid chef. Um, and then your friend, was it Chris Wood? Did I say that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, cause obviously back then you didn't have the internet, um, which I would feel would help a lot with cooking. I know it helps me cause if I want to cook any dish dish in the world, I just search it on YouTube and someone shows me how to do it in under 10 minutes video. Um, so yeah. did you read cookbooks or was it all just kind of learning from other people, uh, trying things on your own? I, I would say, uh, all, all of the above, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't submerse myself in, in cookbooks per se, but certainly look through, you know, recipes and how things are done and, you know, try things. I'd, I'd experiment on friends a lot. I would, uh, you know, either, either offer to cook it at their events, their parties or their gatherings that they were having. Or, um, when I did have the restaurant, I, try and cook something up and I'd offer it up to, you know, a friend that would come in. I say, Hey, you know, try this. And I had a good friend, Matt Cohen. He, he was, he was uh, very supportive and helpful and, and he's, he's a bit of a finicky eater. So mm-hmm. it was good to kind of run things by him and get his feedback. And, you know, he'd tell me when I was full of shit or, or when I was might be on to something or sometimes he'd tell me things I didn't want to hear. So that's <laughs> the way it goes. Right. That's what a good friend is. Well, yeah, and if you can please a picky eater, then you can please pretty much anyone, so. Right. <laughs> um, so, obviously, owning a restaurant can be stressful at times. Um, you kind of have talked about it in a very positive light uh, throughout this quick conversation about it. Were there any kind of stressful times during it where you were kind of sick of it and almost want to just stop or was it all pretty much smooth sailing? Uh, I would say, you know, the, there, there was two things that would kind of grind you down a little bit or, or start to, you know, take the wind out of your sails. So one of them was just the, the hours and, you know, the commitment to those hours. And so, you know, get up at, four four thirty every morning and and go to work and then get home at three four o'clock in the afternoon mm-hmm. that, that was the day um and, and it really meant that you had to go to bed at eight o'clock at night that you couldn't get you know you couldn't 
go hang out with friends till 11 or you mm-hmm. go to a late show or, you know, you were stuck to that. And so it did impact the kind of the social aspect outside of the restaurant. Um, but, you know, that seemed to, to only really be uh, a weight on the shoulders sometimes. And it probably had to do with, oh, somebody's got this going on and you wish you could just hang out and have fun. But, you know, you got to stick to the routine. And then the other thing was just, you know, there was early on and at various times, but mostly early on, there's, there was a tough financial component to it. And, you know, how are we going to, you know, how are we going to make this work? We got bills to pay. We got food to pay for. We got employees to pay for. We got, you know, rent to pay and, you know, utility bills, all those things. And you just didn't, whatever it was, weather or just a down week or something, something went wrong or just maybe timed it wrong or bought wrong. So, yeah, finances were always, always uh, there. Sometimes managed them better than others, but uh, we made it through at the end of the day. But it was, it wasn't without a struggle, and it wasn't without going to people that, you know, were part part of your life and and cared about you and part of your business to say, hey, we're struggling right now. We're going to get through this, but stick with us, and we'll we'll take care of it. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, I mean, obviously that's a very incredible experience. How many years was did you say you had the restaurant for total? Ten. Ten years. Okay. <clears throat> so yeah, that's a pretty big chunk of your life. Um so the restaurant, you eventually close it, correct? Yeah, so we our lease was, was getting uh our lease was ending. And at one point we looked at buying the building. So at this point I was I get married, dear mom, and we looked at buying the building at one point and we decided to build our house instead, which was a great move. And um, we knew our lease was gonna come up and we thought maybe we could renew it and we'd cruise along. And so the, the landlord informed us that they weren't gonna renew the lease. They wanted the space to, to expand their law offices so we started looking around and there was some options. There was a restaurant um, just uh, across the railroad tracks that had closed uh, about a year or two previously and nobody was in there, but it was gonna be another rental. And it was, the space was a good space, but it wasn't, you know, I started to kind of envision what I wanted for space. So I, I continued to look around and I uh, was trying to decide what to do, and my dad had uh, been involved in a in a startup of a company, and I was actually helping him a little bit on the side, and he asked me to come and, and join him full time, and and so it seemed like a a good opportunity to kind of say, all right, let me let me step away from the restaurant business for a little while. I don't know where this other thing's going to go but uh, I can always come back to the restaurant business. This isn't something I got to stick with right now mm-hmm. since I have to, I have to close where I'm at. Um, I might as well try something else and, and then go back to it if I need to. With, with that kind of thinking in mind, we decided, or I decided that uh, I would take all of our regular customers that have been with us over the years 
take them out on uh, Spirit of Ethan Al, which is a big, uh, I would say, a, a pleasure cruise type ship on Lake Champlain. Mm-hmm. Um, they serve dinners and have dance parties and, and stuff. So uh, we took all of our, it was about 35 or 40 of our regular customers, some of our employees that were working for us at the time. We took everybody out uh, one night on this boat and just had a, a really good time kind of putting putting a, an exclamation on the on the end of the, the Choo Choo Express restaurant. So mm-hmm. that was the name of the restaurant. And uh, then I went to work full time for my dad. So that was that was what we did. Yeah, that's very cool that you did that for everyone. Um, just kind of one last hoorah. Um, and kind of like you mentioned, you didn't know if you were going to bring something back. Um, but that that is very cool experience. And it kind of goes back to what I said earlier about kind of building a community um, through. Because I, I don't know if those places really exist anymore where someone's going to the same breakfast place like every morning. Um, I, I mean... I kind of live in like a major city, so yeah. that's a little different. Um, but I know that it's, I guess it can kind of happen with coffee shops. If you go to a coffee shop all the time, but again, it's like, yeah, I, people don't sit around and talk anymore and they don't really interact. I mean, with the restaurant, some of the, some of the people that would come in there, they, they've known each other for since they were in grade school and they're in their seventies. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 really amazing, and and to just see all those interactions and relationships, kind of kind of fun to watch. Yeah, it's definitely different now. When for me and my high school friends, and even grade school friends, we kind of have all moved out of whether it's out of the state or kind of away from home, uh, yeah. and that obviously didn't really happen before. Um, I forget the. I forget the statistic, um, but it's it's essentially the amount of people that have moved, like have moved more than a mile or like ten miles from their home. Um, and I believe, because I was looking at the statistics back in like the 80s, 70s, and eighties, and like nineties, and now, um, and it's definitely going down. Uh, I forget the exact numbers, um, but yeah, it is kind of a different world out there where people are moving on to whether it's a city or just other states because uh, it's a lot easier now um, with people yeah. doing remote work and uh, not only that but just travel is cheaper in general well, it's, it's, it's a big topic uh, in Vermont right now because you know the we just don't have a large population and unemployment numbers are really low and so it's you know how do we sustain how do we grow and and you know keep keep pace with with other parts of the country and attract good workers and you know one of the topics is you know all the kids seem to graduate high school and and go out and and don't ever come back and Mm -hmm. you know i i always Mm -hmm. say well well that's fine i mean i don't i don't think we necessarily need to think our kids of being vermonters for life i want them to you know, graduate high school, go to college, go out, see the world, learn, learns all kinds of things and new things. So we got to figure out how to how to get the people that aren't here to look back here and say, is this a place they want to live? Is this a place they want to work or raise their family or 
you know, the lifestyle and, and, and the things they want. And I, I think we have just as good a chance of doing that as, or probably a better chance of doing that than we do trying to keep our kids here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know this is kind of like an isolated uh, experience, just people I, I know, but I do know that there's a couple of people years older than me that are mo- kind of moving back to Vermont. Um, I know a couple older brothers of friends and different people that yeah. are kind of looking to come back to Vermont. Um, and I think it's also one of those things where, I mean, at least for me, like I don't live in Vermont, but I will probably always come back at least once a year, if not more for the rest of my life. Uh, and so certainly like it's something that I might not necessarily live there now, but I still consider myself a Vermonter. And I think, right. I think others that have lived in Vermont would do the same. Um, I also know of a lot of people that aren't from Vermont that go to UVM and then stay in Burlington. Um, that's a huge, huge draw for people um, to stay uh, just because they go to the college and fall in love with it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, come, come and experience it. It's a great state, but you know, I'm not saying we're better than anybody else. <laughs> brought to you by, I, the, I've, I've, go ahead. I said, this podcast is brought to you by the state of Vermont. <laughs> come live here. <laughs> come live here. Hey, you know, we're giving mm. we're giving uh, money. You can apply for for some grant funds to really to move to Vermont and and uh, work here. Yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's a pretty substantial amount of money. So. Yeah. Well, I know I remember seeing advertisements for like Texas was doing that for a while. I don't think anymore because they're getting too many people. Um, I know Ohio is giving like depending on the. I I just remember I saw some ad and obviously you have to like fall under these requirements, but like giving people up to like 10 grand to move to Ohio, which seems outrageous. Right. Yeah. Well, 10 grand doesn't get you very far these days. Yeah, exactly. Seems, seems silly, but <laughs> not, not as far as it once did. Right. Obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so going back to your life story. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Y- we kind of got sidetracked there. Um, so you close up shop at the restaurant. You start this. Would you would consider it a startup with your with your dad? Uh, was there any other people involved, or was it just the two of you? So uh, it, my dad started it with uh, another partner in the early nineties. Okay. So just about the time I was starting up the restaurant and. Um, so yeah, so when I joined them, uh, they were they were kind of cruising along and ended up uh, ha- having two different companies at the time, and they were trying to make both of them work, and it was it was a bit of a struggle, and so uh, my dad ended up taking over one company and giving up his interest in the other company, and and his partner took the other company, so they kind of split. Um, it allowed them to to focus on their kind of what they were most interested in. And uh, my dad started to, you know, really dig his teeth into some opportunities with the, with a company that he took, took control of and was out, you know, beating the pavement, trying to find 
customers for their ideas and um, that's when I joined him and then after I joined him we, we were able to successfully get some some pretty big customers to come in for for some fairly uh, long contracts that went over a couple of years so mm. the customers committed to to you know really really helping uh, liquid measurement systems get off the ground mm-hmm and so when you were kind of having these customers come visit, there was no office, correct? It was correct. Yeah, the the, the startup was the kitchen table and, and the shop. Um, we we did end up uh, adding uh, office trailer to the to the to the front yard uh, in the driveway, and we ended up adding a second office trailer and. Uh, at one point, we we had uh, these folks come and, and visit us, and you know we were going to build uh, what amounted to, which was a big deal at the time. Not big parts, but you know they're about twenty four inches long and mm-hmm. not very big around. But uh, we were going to build fifty six a month for like three years, mm-hmm. and. Uh, so, so they came and their engineers were here, their project managers, their quality people, and they they spent a couple of days and you know we we walked them through all all the design stuff and you know of course did the the Vermont hospitality showed them showed them this area that area took them up through Smuggler's Notch and so at the end of the day they were getting ready to leave at the end of the second day or third day whatever it was and they said okay. Um, this is great. You guys, you guys really got it. So one thing that we didn't uh, get a chance to see is where are you going to build these? Just <laughs> a valid question. We, yeah, valid question. And we said uh, right here. <laughs> and they, they didn't know what to say. Um, they, they, I mean, they knew we were serious, but mm. they, they realized that you know, we were really just a startup at the time. Yeah. But, um, so they had some concerns and, and we had to, to pacify those concerns through, you know, some some negotiations and and things. But we ultimately uh, got the contract and got the company really, really started and and, and began to grow it. But, you know, a small company, especially in, in northwestern Vermont in the aerospace industry, uh, it's... It, you know, it's a bit of a, a, a tough sell. Mm-hmm. Um, we were getting uh, ready to embark on a on a very uh, big contract with with Boeing, and um, we had submitted a proposal, been to several meetings. Felt like we were in a good spot, and uh, they they called up one afternoon and said, "Well, we're we got a guy flying up tomorrow morning. He's coming up to inspect your facility. We want to choose you, but his report is uh got to be submitted and approved by management before mm-hmm. any contract can be issued." Mm-hmm. So we're like right on the cusp. Well, it turns out that it's mud season in Vermont. <laughs> the 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 old stage road, which is the the road off of our dirt road, was actually closed that day because it was under construction. Oh boy! So this guy's flying in and uh, trying to figure out how I can pick him up at the airport and bring him out here so he doesn't get lost. <laughs> and uh, anyway, he ends up coming out. Uh, I remember the guy's name. Great guy. Uh, 
just you know more than more than just a, a business, but you know somebody that understood small companies like ours, how they were trying to 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 make things work. So he went back, uh, did a did a PowerPoint presentation for management, and uh, ended up uh, management approved, and LMS Liquid Measurement Systems got the contract, mm-hmm. and we marched forward. Jump, jump a, a year or two down the road. I'm, I'm, I'm in Philadelphia at Boeing, and I'm, I'm talking to the to the lead engineer down there, and he's like, um, you know, remember when when the when the quality guy came up and, and visited, had to write the report and, and give a presentation to management, and I said, yeah. He's like, I, I don't, I don't think you ever ever knew this, but he had to give us a slide presentation. So here, let me let me show you what the slide presentation is. So he brought it up, and at the time we were actually in a in a brick house uh, across the road from my parents' house, and mm-hmm. he brought up the front slide, and on the slide is a tent at a campsite with you know picnic table, motorcycle, kind of the normal stuff around it, mm-hmm. and that was his opening slide to management, and it said liquid measurement systems across the the, the top of the tent. And that was his opening slide to management. <laughs> and, you know, they, he was he was really smart. He's like, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. These yeah. guys are who they are. Yeah. Uh, he couldn't, like, just show a picture of a brick house in the woods and back roads of Westford, Vermont. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it was a good, it was, so it ended up being a good relationship and still is to this day. Mm-hmm. That's a very cool story. Um, and so do you want to kind of give a description? Uh, you, you've kind of talked about the company and the industry, um, but do you want to just give a brief description about the product that uh, LMS provides? Yeah, so uh, Liquid Measurement System specializes in fuel measurement and fuel management systems for aircraft. So we continuously monitor the fuel level inside the fuel tanks report that to the cockpit and crew. And, uh, you know, it's, it seems pretty straightforward. Uh, it sounds important. It is critically important. And uh, it is, it can get complicated with uh, things changing over temperature and fuel moving around and CG of the aircraft and, and all kinds of other things. So, um, but it's, it's, that's what we do and we're really good at it. Mm-hmm. and uh we we enjoy it we've got great people that work for us and it's uh we get we work for some really interesting customers do some fun stuff mm-hmm. um so i guess so the one thing is kind of the fuel management uh aspect of is is that essentially the only product that lms creates or is there uh others that maybe are similar but not this exactly the same does that make sense um well there, there's other companies there's uh a lot of other companies that do what we do mm-hmm. um but but not as many as you know that sell a, a, a tape measures or staplers or something but we, we certainly uh have competition that's primarily what we do we have we have units that go in the tank that 
the fuel interfaces with, and then mm-hmm. we have electronics and, and smart devices with with software that help us with computational uh, aspects of, of the system. And then we have small displays that either go in the cockpit or on a refuel panel. But that's that's really what we do. Mm-hmm. And we uh, offer a lot of project management to kind of go along with it and engineering testing and documentation and stuff, but there all relates to, to that product. Mm-hmm. And so how much has it changed over the years from your kind of final product now uh, to the final product back in what year was it when the, the guy from Boeing came when you essentially started? So I would say that uh, we've we've really transitioned to uh, what we would call a, a digital world and a software world, and and used to be primarily analog. Mm-hmm. So uh, the a lot of our gauges used to be what we call steam gauges, so dial and pointer. Um, if you can picture that, mm-hmm. like the gas gauge in your car, where, where you've got a pointer that kind of tells you how much fuel you have two digital displays where we can provide much more accuracy and, and uh, fidelity into, you know, how many gallons or how many pounds of, of fuel you have. Um, the, the software and the, and the digital component allows us to uh, create smaller packaging, lighter packaging, and also do more faster so we can do more processing of information and and we can process that information faster. So like what kind, you say more information, so is it just more information about the fuel? Like, cause obviously the, for me, a fuel gauge is just like, oh, I have a half tank, um, but I'm sure these are a little more complicated. Does it kind of tell you the different levels of say oxygen in the fuel or something like that or? Not so much that, but it, when you think of uh, when we first got started, we, we were really good at almost single tank um, measurements. So if somebody had an auxiliary fuel tank or only had one tank on an aircraft, that was, that was something that we could do and we were very good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what the processing power allows us to do is to kind of look at an aircraft holistically and say, all these different, uh, you know, you have wing tanks, you have main fuselage tanks, you might have some auxiliary tanks, and that you can you can look at all of those and calculate your fuel, and then you can detect where there's an imbalance, and either uh, tell the crew to to correct that, or you could correct that yourself. You can um, detect low level. Uh, sometimes you want to know when the fuel is at a certain height when they're filling it because they fill it under uh, what they call pressure refueling. So it fills really fast. Okay. And if if they don't shut off in time, then the fuel overflows mm-hmm. or or breaks something in the tank because it can't take anymore. So you need to have, sometimes you need to have a, a high level shutoff Mm-hmm. And that's got to act in a certain amount of time to to give people proper notice. Yeah, that makes sense. Because like I, I just think of filling your 
tank your gas tank in your car at the gas station and the pump just kind of automatically turns off um when it's full so i is that is that like kind of similar technology or no same idea in, in some cases we actually have to have a sensor that's that's in the aircraft fuel tank so when okay. that fuel gets to that height we send an electronic signal mm-hmm. to the pump to say shut down okay so it automatically does it it's not someone that has it in right. and then has to yank it out right okay that's very cool yeah uh, so you kind of mentioned uh, earlier, like kind of coming forward that there's some cool new projects that you guys are working on. I know a lot of thing is lots, lots of stuff are kind of confidential. And if it's under contract, you can't necessarily talk about it. Uh, are there any, is there anything that you can talk about to kind of new projects? Yeah, I think, I think there's a few things we can talk about. Um, so we, we're doing a product for a company uh, called Stratolaunch. Okay. And it was uh, started up uh, with scaled composites and had, had some, uh, I would say, financing from Paul Allen, who was involved in Microsoft. Uh, he's, he passed away a number of years ago, so the... The program fell on hard times, but then was picked up by private equity. And essentially what it is, is it's a it's a two fuselage, broad wing aircraft. Um, and it's they're using it to test for hypersonic flight. So okay. they, they essentially take uh, a smaller aircraft and they put it underneath this uh, larger aircraft called Stratolaunch and they, and they bring it up to the upper reaches of the atmosphere and, and they launch a, a hypersonic vehicle. And so we work on that program. We're doing the main aircraft and, um, you know, it's, it's exciting. It's a challenge. Um, we're doing some pretty cool stuff. So we've got to make our equipment work in, in an environment that's, that's really tough, but, uh, you know, it's it's not anything that's going to go into manufacturing. So it's a it's a bit of an engineering challenge, mm. and and we like it and and love it for that respect. But we won't see you know any any number of aircraft built built from it um, mm. as a result. So uh, there's programs like that. We've got other programs that we do for we're doing a uh, firefighting aircraft for for a company right now with where. This particular aircraft is called a water bomber, and it comes down and and essentially scoops water out of out of a lake or large pond, hmm. and and you know fills up its internal tank, and then it flies off over a forest fire and dumps and it. dumps the water, <clears throat> and so you can imagine for them uh, center of gravity CG is the acronym. Center of gravity is incredibly important to them, and where the fuel is and how it's interacting with the water as it comes on board and gets sprayed out mm-hmm. is, uh, is critical. So um, that that hopefully does lead to some production. Mm-hmm. I think they need more firefighting assets. Yeah, definitely. From the air in the future, and um, mm-hmm. so yeah, there's programs like that. We do we do a lot of rotorcraft, so we do some commercial and military. Mm-hmm. 
Rotocraft were involved in uh, some of the some of the newest technology there, so that's exciting. Mm-hmm. And so the so for people that are kind of at home wanting to look at these, so if they look strata launch up, they'll find that aircraft. Yes. Okay, and then the other one is a fire bar- fire bomber, correct? Fire bomber. It's called the CL four fifteen. Okay, CL-415. So for those of you at home that are curious about these aircrafts, you can Google it. And it, I have seen both of them, um, and the uh, strata launch thing is kind of weird looking. It's not what you th- would think it would look like. Um, at least it's not what I thought. Uh, and the, the fire bomber, the, um, it's a very cool concept. And like you said, I think it would be I mean, I don't know how effective it is. I'm not really a firefighting expert, um, but it seems as if it would be ex- effective. Um, and it seems like a pretty simple concept, too. I guess it is kind of hard, though, because um, I know in California, when there are these kind of wildfires raging, that conserving water is a big thing. Um, so I don't know if kind of taking it from different lakes and stuff would be necessarily but i guess you if it's the only way to put out the fire then you have to do that right right yeah i think you worry worry about the if the fire rages on i think your water problems get more severe Mm -hmm. Mm. (sighs) Uh, so yeah so you worked in the business um this business lms uh for how many years would you say? Uh, I would say you know over over twenty years now. Mm-hmm. Um, I got involved right you know right about the, the time the restaurant was closing, so we, we closed that up in in two thousand one. Um, so that was twenty years ago, and you know just helping my dad out on the periphery a little bit on a few things prior to that. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah, that's that's where we're at now, and um, you know we've got we've got a bunch of great people working for us that are really smart and uh, do a, do a fantastic job. So mm-hmm. the customers are fun. People who use the aircraft are, are fun. You know, mm-hmm. it's just uh, just a, a, a great uh, you know kind of uh, little community we've put together. Mm-hmm. And so, obviously, you going from owning a restaurant, being a chef, to this field, uh, it's a little different. Um, It's a lot more like engineering and things like that, uh, obviously. Uh, So, I guess, how did you, did you mostly just through conversations with your dad, uh, is that kind of what educated you or uh, were there kind of other people that along the way helped you as well kind of navigate this field yeah i i would say uh some of some of all of that you know my my dad's very uh very very smart very accomplished engineer uh i grew up with that um he had before before burglar alarm systems were really uh, something that you could go down to Radio Shack or or Home Depot or Costco's and buy, he he designed his own, and my brother and I built it. So you know I would read schematics and solder components and 
and build things. And, and so I think he did it more to challenge himself and us than, than he, than he was worried about any burglar coming in. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, things like that, we're always doing, doing fun stuff. Um, I was in third grade. I went into, uh, another local school. He talked about, you know, electricity and, and how it works and, put a few demonstrations on for the kids. So I had, I had a little hot dog cooker I had made that I showed, <laughs> showed the kids how to cook a hot dog. And then I, there was a magnet that, that we made and um, also a light bulb and showed them kind of how all electricity. So I was always around this engineering component growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother's an engineer, my sister's an engineer. So, uh, you know, kind of, kind of, had it in in the in the growth of my of my life and learning but there was other people that that were helpful um and you know i didn't didn't really think about it at the time but after i got into the business and and working with customers and understanding operations the the quality component and the customer satisfaction faction component from the restaurant business is transferable to many things and it really helped me in the aerospace industry understand the importance of you know the the quality of the material you start with and the care that you put in and attention you put into the process of building it really affects your customer service it affects you know how your reputation is and and so you know there's a really uh, a tight bond there and it was transferable in the long run for me to to take what i learned in one business and and bring it to another mm-hmm. yeah kind of tie it all back together when you were mentioning word of mouth for the restaurant business um i'm, I'm sure that definitely kind of relates to the aerospace industry um just because it's i mean i could be wrong but it's not necessarily a huge industry with a bunch of different players everyone kind of knows each other and uh everyone's aware of other people um so yeah um so i guess going outside of the business um and because obviously you're multifaceted man it's not just all business um what are some other things that you uh whether it's now or kind of previously that you were involved in um outside of kind of your main career well that's that's a good question i don't know uh let's see hobbies or 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 interests or or things in the fun bucket you know uh like to play golf Mm -hmm. uh I'm not sure everybody would call it that when they if they see me play, but it's fun fun to get out. Um, like to be in the woods. I used to do a lot more hunting and fishing than I do now. For some mm. reason, I don't don't seem to to spend as much time doing that. But uh, like to be outside. Like to be in the woods. We've got a, we've got a pretty pretty good chunk of of land up behind the house that we have in a forestry plan. So like to kind of go up and play in the woods every now and then and mm-hmm. stay stay in tune with that um well over the years i've tried to kind of stay involved with different business organizations and 
and you know uh, be on boards or or be as kind of a mentor to to other people starting up in business. So I still do a little bit of that. Um, lately, I've gotten involved with some some town um, civic type duties. I'm on the planning commission and a couple other related uh, committees to to help the town kind of advance forward with some of some of their projects or some of their regular day-to-day stuff so that's fun mm-hmm. uh so i guess i'm curious because obviously at the start of this podcast you mentioned that you're a college dropout after the first semester uh and so when most people think of a college dropout they think of someone that kind of doesn't know what to do with their life and uh not to say that you had everything figured out um when you kind of dropped out of college, but I guess, do you kind of, uh, I'm trying to think of the word. Um, I guess, do you have an idea about why kind of, because obviously you're very successful, you're involved in all these different things. Is there something, is there a reason why you're like that? Or do you think, is it someone else that has kind of pushed you to be like that, or is it more you pushing yourself? Mm. Yeah, I don't know. So, uh, you know, looking looking back, uh, it would it would have been nice to to stick with college. Uh, there would have been some some good things that I would have uh, learned to do better or do different. Um, I, I wouldn't trade my life experience for anything, so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't choose a redo. Um, I think that one of the reasons why I um, have have been successful in spite of myself is, you know, with perseverance and and just commitment to kind of stick with something till you get a chance to work through it and and figure it out. Um, give everything time, you know, but I've always, I've been incredibly fortunate in that I've always been able to, for the most part, enjoy doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if you're not, if you're not enjoying it, don't give up on it, you know, find a way to, to, make it more enjoyable or, or replace it. But, you know, don't, don't give up on it. You know, you can, you know, certain things in, in business, whether it was the restaurant or liquid measurement systems or other jobs I've had that, you know, there's certain things that you either don't enjoy doing mostly probably because you're not good at it and, and, or you don't feel like you're going to be successful at it, or there's other people that are better at it and, and just find those things and just, you know, move, move those, move those items around and and let other people that are good at something, take it and run with it and, and, uh, stick to the stuff, the part that you enjoy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And kind of that, uh, the second to last thing you said, find good people. I forget who said, I feel like a lot of people have said it, but you always want to be the dumbest person in the room, kind of that kind of way of thinking to, surround yourself with people that are smarter than you because it'll it'll only kind of lift you up higher if that makes sense um 
It, it does. And, and I think the challenge for, for me and, and probably other people too, but certainly say it from my experience is, you know, recognizing and acknowledging somebody's strengths and empowering to empowering that person to take that and, and go with it and give them confidence and support that they need. So they don't feel like that they're kind of, you know, am I doing a good job or not? And because people have strengths and you, you know, being able to recognize those and, and let them kind of carry that. It's like being a coach of a lacrosse team or a basketball team or something, mm-hmm. you know, you say, okay, you know, just, these are your strengths. We're going to leverage those. We don't, you know, we want you to be successful. So go, go, go attack these projects, you know, from this perspective or with this skill set. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm definitely a firm believer in that. Everyone kind of has talent in some, some way. Um, and it's just, some people are able to bring it out of themselves where others kind of need someone else, like you said, to like identify those strengths and to bring it out. Um, and obviously, I mean, someone like me, like musically doesn't have necessarily the same talent as someone else, um, like some famous pop artist or whatever. Uh, but I do think that if I, like you said, with the perseverance aspect, if you kind of stick with something and try something, obviously you're going to get better at it. Uh, if I wake up tomorrow and write for like a year straight and all I do is write every day, I'm obviously going to get better as a writer. Um, I might not be Ernest Hemingway, but I'll be better than I was before. Yeah, um, you just need a few more cats, right? <laughs> yeah. Did he have a lot of cats? Yeah, he had a lot of cats. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Um, so I also want to go back to something you mentioned a few times uh, about kind of building a community, both with the restaurant and in uh, kind of your business relationships. And I feel like you also have, uh, just through, like you mentioned, kind of being on other boards in Vermont and working in your own community, too. Uh, is that something that you kind of realized later on life or have you always kind of been that kind of bringing people together since you were in high school or even before that? Yeah, I would, you know, um, I don't know. I, I guess that's just the kind of person I am, uh, somebody that likes to, to bring people together, um, or, or be part of something bigger. Um, that, that might be, you know, more of it than, than anything else. I think it's, um, you know, I've been, ever since I was a kid, I, I, my parents traveled a lot. They had a homemade camper. So we got to, you know, go to places all around the country at different times. And, you know, we had, we had a lot of opportunity and then I had opportunity to, to do some traveling and, when I got out of high school and, and into my twenties and, you know, I've been overseas a number of times and um, I don't know, you just get a chance to, to broaden the world and your perspective of the world and um, being able to be part of a larger community, uh, you know, part of, you know, just a group of people working together to a common good. I think that that's just part of who I am. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And like you mentioned, traveling does kind of, it really does humble you, um, especially when you go to kind of major cities that are not in the United States, uh, kind of because it's like, oh, there's millions of people living like other where other places in the world and they right. they look at life and e- even experience life completely differently um whether it's just like little things like one thing i remember is uh studying abroad in australia so i lived there for four months um they just keep their eggs like on the shelf and i remember going to the grocery store the first time and i was just like what what the fuck like aren't these gonna go bad like and it, I mean, it turns out you don't necessarily have to refrigerate eggs. I think they go bad faster, um, but it just kind of shows that one, those eggs are probably more fresh than the eggs we get necessarily in America. Um, yeah, I mean, and it's just the, like the little differences. Yeah, little things like that kind of make you appreciate other people, I guess. Uh, at least it has for me, um, and kind of experiencing different cultures. Yeah, get out there and 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 see, you know, experiences can be, um, you know, it can be exciting, it can be informative, um, educational, they can be humbling at times too, right? Uh, so it's, uh, it's good to get out and see the world. And now with all the, you know, access we have to, to things either through the internet or streaming devices and, and things it's um it's great but it doesn't it doesn't replace what you can do in person and what you can experience in person so mm. yeah i guess my worry is that one day it might does that make sense like because yeah. so like for example i've been to the grand canyon it was awesome to see it but is there going to become a day where kind of i mean there already is kind of a day with vr where you can Put on VR goggles on, and you're yeah. at the Grand Canyon. I mean, you you can't necessarily like, like I I don't think like touch and smell haven't really hit that yet. But I know that they are working on like the smell aspect of VR. But yeah, I guess it, it's scary to think about in the future, especially with how fast technology rapidly increases. That there might there be is a company time. In, there is a company in Vermont that's working on the olfactory component of vr is that the pr- correct term for it olfactory yeah okay and, and i've i've uh, demoed some of their stuff they're a good group of guys i don't i don't know where they were they were just trying to get started up right when the pandemic hit so mm-hmm. i i had met with a couple of them uh in burlington and uh yeah they had they, they're still in early stages but it was pretty cool i I had the goggles on and I was in this animated uh, pizza shop mm-hmm. and I made a, and I made a pizza. So you make the pizza and you put the pepperoni on it and the basil on it. And so you can smell the, the pepperoni before you put it on it. And really? You can smell the basil before you put it on it. And then, and then you put it in the pizza oven and mm. then you can smell the pizza baking. It, it was pretty cool. It was, it was a fun experience. And they had one, uh, you were mowing the lawn and pulling some weeds and smelling the roses, but uh, it was all it was all pretty much animated type of graphics mm-hmm. and and really just focused on, you know, picking a rose and smelling it yeah. kind of thing. So it's kind of cool. Would you would you say like how accurate was it? Could you kind of? I mean, I guess it's kind of hard to tell, but I mean, you know what a rose smells like, right? Did it smell like a rose? 
Yeah, I mean, to a to a certain degree, you could you could sense some uh, artificial, mm-hmm. and and that may have been more of the experience because you were in an animated setting. Yeah, you know, you weren't you didn't feel like you were in a real environment, but you could see where it could become really useful for. You know, I look at it as like a training opportunity more than just a, a pleasurable experience. So if if there was a way that, you know, you could use it to help, I don't know, first responders in some sort of instances, you know, when you, when you catch this smell, it, this smell has a meaning and you could pre-train for that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's probably other situations that that could be used for training and whether it's a industrial work environment or something so um yeah yes it'll be interesting to see where it goes yeah yeah that is true because it could be you could use it for firefighters where kind of like certain smells means a certain type of fire or if there's like a gas leak or something like that or like hat like you said like if someone's working at a <clears throat> nuclear power plant or like a waste management site i'm just thinking of like homer simpson (laughs) homer simpson's job but like someone that worked at a plant like that like it would definitely be helpful if you could kind of almost have a test like these are the different smells rather than exposing people to the actual smells um but yeah your point about the artificialness yeah i i can assume that probably that smell would always be artificial right no matter how well because I mean, I don't know. Can you, I'm thinking of like a banana. Can you like capture the smell of, I mean, I don't know how that stuff works. Do you know at all? So I, I, I learned, I learned a little bit about it, but probably uh, have some of this inaccurate. So don't, don't hold me to all this, but Mm. the way I I was uh, understanding it is essentially there's a, and it's, it's not a national or government thing, but it's some, some organization or some large company that essentially has this bank of smells that hmm. they use to support the cosmetics industry, fragrance industry, um, food industry. So, so you could like literally like go out and you could buy almost any smell you want okay wait so hold on so there's one company that sells all the smells i don't think it's one company but it might be like a collection this consortium or this this association that basically if you if you want a scent for fragrance here's your options if you want a scent for um your your hand cream this Uh is you know for your deodorant. And so there's these big smell banks essentially out there that you go to and you say, I want that smell. (sighs) Okay. And so that's where they get these different smells from. And that's where they get the different smells from. And so it's in food too, right? Cause I remember, I don't know if I was reading it or I heard something that like different fast food restaurants put like different smells to their food. Am I correct yeah. on that? Yeah, so this comes um, this comes from that those types of companies. I I would think so. Yeah, 
unless they have their own kind of division that would be i can just imagine like meeting someone oh what do you do for a living oh, i sell smells <laughs> <laughs> you got any good ones or are they all bad ones yeah true i didn't even think of that like do they do we would they sell bad smells probably yes. not they do nope they do yeah like a skunk smell? What? What? I guess. What reason would you need a skunk smell for? So, uh, <clears throat> skunk smells are actually used uh, by trappers oh, to really? attract coyotes. Oh, that yeah, like a yeah, that would make sense. Um, not. I'm not into that, but I do know that, and, mm. and so um, yeah. I mean, and a skunk smell is a bad smell to us, but I guess it's not to a coyote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is kind of, it's a weird thing to think about that skunk smell is obviously terrible to humans, but something like that eats a skunk would like probably loves the smell of it. It's like right. just, it's just like humans with like garlic and hamburgers or something like that. Like we're drawn to that because we eat it. Huh. <laughs> Didn't didn't think we'd have a twenty minute long uh, smell conversation on the pod, but <laughs> right. Well, we could do some more research and and, and get more details on it. But um, yeah, mm. yeah, the whole VR thing is is interesting. I think I think one of the 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 VR experiences that'll probably be be most important is is the training. Mm-hmm. And and then the other one will be to, um, hey, you know, this doesn't exist anymore because we either destroyed it, <laughs> humans screwed it up, or uh, it's not something that's possible mm-hmm. for, for some people, maybe because, you know, they want to go to space, but they can't go to space kind of thing. Um, so I think that's where there'll be opportunity for it to, to really kind of develop and, and become something that's that's more widespread yeah i didn't even think of that that would be to visit space because not only it would be cool for like me and you to do it but for like astronauts like training because if you put a i mean they're putting rovers on mars and stuff you can kind of scan it and so you can kind of like know like they can experience it there before they even get there right yeah i mean it's definitely a crazy field um which I have a little experience uh, in college. I worked in the VR lab and we had, I think, six or eight Oculus kind of uh, headsets that were hooked up to computers. So, I mean, but that was just all like playing games and you, uh, you, uh, what do you call it? You can like watch videos and stuff. Um, It's definitely kind of, definitely like the early stages of it. Um, and I, I don't think the goggles will kind of be like something that is used for the rest of time. Uh, I don't know. I almost feel like it'll be like a room almost. Does that make sense with like screens all around? I don't know though. It, it could be, you know, we, we never know where this stuff is going to go. They could, they could start putting contact lenses over our eyes that have screens in them yeah. before long. So, um, <laughs> But yeah, I've been I've been to some of these things where they use them for training. So they'll put, you know, 
uh, a group of people in a in a fixed area, mm-hmm. and and they will all have um, goggles on, but they also have all these cameras set up on the on the periphery, and so they figure out where all the people are, and all the people that have the goggles get that information, so they they know where all the other people are, and you know they can essentially do this you know virtual reality type training with a with a group of people that they don't have to be with right they, they're, they're there but they're not there so they can simulate different things and make different things happen it's kind of crazy yeah it is because you could have kind of people training together that are in like separate places of the world right. if that makes sense like you could have someone in russia and china and america like doing some sort of like tactical training or something like that. Yeah. It's definitely a pretty cool industry. Um, just one thing that kind of concerns me is Oculus is er- er- owned by Facebook. Well, I guess I should say meta. Oh, right. Is it metaverse or is it just meta? I can't remember. I don't know. That's one thing that kind of gives me, gives me, but I mean, there's other companies out there too. And like we said that, the VR goggles probably isn't the main thing that's going to be long lasting in the virtual reality space. Yeah. You know, YouTube, uh, you can, like you mentioned earlier in this, in this conversation, YouTube, you can go and, and learn to do just about anything in less than 10 minutes. Mm. Um, you know, and it's amazing resource. I feel like it's almost put dads out of business in some respects because they can't teach their kids how to do stuff anymore. Their, their kids just go on YouTube and it's like, no, let me show you that. And you're like, no, dad. So yeah. we got to reinvent ourselves and compete with YouTube, but I think we can do it. Yeah. It's like, oh, hey, dad, my f- sink's broken. Can you like come over or like call you to like figure it out? And it's like, no, I can just like Google it now or figure right. out like <laughs> that is true. But yeah, I mean, it is really crazy for it and it's for anything. I mean, I don't think I've ever, I mean, even starting this podcast with looking up like different microphones and recording devices, um, there's like so many videos about, I mean, and and products too, if you're kind of wondering like what Wi-Fi router should I get? What speaker should I get? What headphones should I get? There's hundreds if not thousands of videos about every type of electronic device or i mean you name it out there there's right there's content on it um and, and, it, and what's great is you can take the pros and cons right because mm-hmm. there is pros and cons to everything and you can weigh that for what your needs are and there's a lot of great products out there with the amount of data information you can get on the performance of those products is amazing mm-hmm yeah, and sometimes it can definitely be overwhelming the amount of information. Um, I f- forget who said it. I always, I always have like these things in my brains, but I never remember who said them. Who said the things? So I apologize to everyone. I'm just taking their ideas. But essentially, like the internet was like a hose, a regular hose that people you could lo- like log on. And then kind of once the iPhone was created and everyone has an iPhone now, now that you can look at stuff instantly, like all the time, it's like a fire hose, like just blasting you with information. Um, And the fact that you can get to it so quickly, 
it's always in your pocket or like right next to you um, or in the other room. Because before, I mean, you were using the internet during the dial-up age, uh, but that was kind of a process to get on the internet. It kind of, you probably wouldn't necessarily, if you like were arguing with your friend about a movie, you wouldn't necessarily like fire up the laptop and like to get down to it. But now it's like, boom, instant. Oh yeah, do do the old dial-up. You go, sometimes it works, sometimes it wouldn't. I remember I saw a video the other week and and it was the caption was like trigger someone that was born before i don't know it was like 1997 or six or something and it just played the dial-up sound because <laughs> like obviously people that are old, like younger than that like never heard it so they don't really know what it is um but mm. yeah it's a you know uh when you when you think of uh, like the YouTube thing, I I was uh, embarking on on a camp project of of like you know putting uh, pulling out the the dock and the and the boat lift, and I had always hired somebody to do it, and I decided to start doing it myself, and so I had to make some changes to the to the configuration of the boat lift so I could make it easier to get out and. So I load up the truck and I got all this pry bars and straps and chains and ramps and planks. And my dad's there. I, th- I think it's Cameron and, and another friend and we're driving mm-hmm. down. And I said, you know, it's, it's only going to take about 12 minutes to do this when we get there. And my dad looks at me and he says, what? And, and I said, yeah, I watched it on YouTube last night. It's only about 12 minutes and we'll have it all out. <laughs> Took a little longer than that, I'm assuming. Yeah, it was a little longer than that, but that's all right. So, yeah, they make everything look so easy, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. And it's kind of the same with cooking. Um, That's just because, like, that's kind of the main thing that I watch on YouTube as far as, like, how people do things. Uh, And I've run into many of times when people just kind of do something. I'm like, oh, that looks easy. Because when you're watching it, you're like, oh, I've never done it. But if they can do it, I can do it, right? Um, but yeah, definitely those, the people that create those videos are obviously experts at it. So they have some, some, some experience. Well, and I guess you would hope that they have experience doing it. So they're not leading you down the wrong path, (laughs) which I can say, I don't think that's ever happened to me. Has that ever happened to you where you watch something or like read something online and it gives you bad advice? I can't really remember a time. Um, yeah, I, I would, you know, maybe something where you've gotten advice and maybe how you perceived it wasn't quite right the first time. So mm-hmm. you like, you do something, you say, well, that didn't work out. And you say, well, is it because I didn't do it right? Or is it because I got bad advice? But yeah, yeah for the most part, I mean, people can't put things out there that are that are going to give a negative or or undesirable ending Mm. and be successful so yeah exactly i guess i'm just kind of surprised because like i said like i use the internet a lot for like recipes and stuff and like i'm just shocked that like one time like a recipe wasn't just like they made it just to like 
have people make bad food because there's like trolls and stuff out there that people just want to well, yeah, cause keep, ruckus. Watch out for and, like April Fool's Day or something. Maybe that's not the best <laughs> day to go look for recipes. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I tell you what, looking at recipes online is great, but I cannot stand the pop-up ads that happen mm-hmm. on recipe on the recipe pages. I get into that and I just I get out of them. I, I go to a different recipe. Can't stand them. There's also um on every uh on all like people have blogs and stuff like that the recipe is always at the very bottom of the page so you have to like scroll through everything to actually get to the recipe <laughs> yeah yeah they're just doing that no, my new york times cooking and and mm-hmm. epicurious those are kind of my my two go-to i'm not uh i'm not endorsing them or, mm-hmm. or getting any getting paid to say that or anything but uh that's that's kind of my go-to Mm-hmm. yeah yeah i would say those two are very good too and just for me i like follow a few youtube chefs that just kind of have a bunch of content um released whether it's like weekly or monthly or a couple times a week uh and so finding different kind of recipes on there is fun too and it, i think it really helps i know for me watching other people cook something kind of helps as far as like oh like it's not that hard because cooking can be very intimidating to a lot of people um i know like it was for me when i kind of first started um but once you kind of see someone else do something and you've done something and it kind of turned out well then it kind of encourages you to keep going forward yeah i mean there's there's an element that uh, I think a human race has, and that is, you know, the fear of failure, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of times we, we don't want to try things or we don't want to do things because, you know, we might fail at it. And cooking, that's that puts it right out there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, are people going to like this? Uh, is this going to come out? Is it going to burn? Am I, are, are people going to look at me as, you know, somebody that can't do anything mm-hmm. correctly or something? We used, to, we used to do some crazy stuff at the restaurant. We tried to deep fry an egg one time. Uh, yeah, it didn't work out so well. But, you know, you just, yeah, you got you to gotta be adventurous mm-hmm. and, you know, willing to take take chances and risks and not worry about what the what the results are now of course can't do that in everything right mm-hmm. you got to be you got to be safe and you got to be respectful but um be, be willing to try new things yeah have you ever heard of a deep fried candy bar someone was talking to me about it last week i had never heard of it no i haven't heard of that one do they do they bread it or anything i i'm i mean i don't think so some of right? these things that they that people try, you know, they don't they bread it, but and then sometimes they don't bread it, and yeah. it kind of creates a crispy, natural crispy. So, I would think the candy bar would just melt if they didn't like coat they, it. But they I, must coat I, it. I have them. no idea. I don't, I don't know. I just remember like because it was like around Halloween or whatever, and they're like, "Oh yeah, like we got deep fried candy bars again this year. Like we get them every year." And I was like, "Excuse me." Cause I had never heard like it, like you said, like I feel like it would just melt. They must coat it. I don't really know. Gonna have to do some research on that. Yeah, you might might have to do the old GTS there. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, again, I forget the guy's name. I can like picture his face right now. But anyways, he's a Louisiana cook. And he was talking about, um, this is going back to cooking. He was talking about what is it that, uh, shit. What is like the brown sauce that is made? It's like part of Louisiana cooking. It's like the Holy Trinity. Oh, a roux. That's what, so he okay. was he was essentially saying you've never like you're not a good chef or you're not good at making roux unless you've like burned a ton of them if that makes sense um yeah and so i think that is that's a good thing to you can kind of plaster that like across life necessarily is that you're not necessarily good at something unless you've messed up very many times because that that kind of shows that you've done a lot of times and not only that when you do mess something up you hopefully take some sort of learning out of it um which that's why i've always kind of been curious because like you mentioned like the average human doesn't necessarily like to fail uh and i i would put myself at that category but you almost kind of want to rewire your brain to to not not to fail but when you do fail to kind of take the positives from that and then hopefully just move on. Yeah. You know, uh, to, to quote a good friend and, and former coworker, retired general experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> yeah, sometimes that happens more, more than once in life. Mm-hmm. So what do you got going on this weekend? This weekend? Yeah. Um, well, sh- should we wrap up the pod first? We can oh, do like a signing. Yeah, why don't we do a signing off and then we can just kind of talk. Okay. Um, so thank you for coming on today. Really appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we had a good discussion. Um, hopefully you'll be back at some point when, when we get a lot bigger to help uh, grow the brand. There we go. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun and it's uh, been a lot of fun uh, listening to your other podcasts and, you know, you, you really make this uh, a, a simple and seamless effortless uh, type of thing and as it should be. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited for, for you and for what you're doing and I look forward to listening to this and, Avery, you got to keep it going. Rock it on. All right. Thank you very much um, for those nice, kind words. Um, not biased at all. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yes, thank you all for listening. If you made it this far, thank you so much. Uh, again, follow us on Twitter at Avery underscore friends um, and Instagram, Avery dot and friends as well. Throw us a follow uh, and you'll get notified when the new episodes come back. Um, and then again, if you can just tell one other person about the podcast, that would be greatly appreciated. Um, and thank you very much. See you next week.